Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now on C-Suite Radio. We also now have our own iTunes show, so check us out. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up the PCAOB shakeup and what it might mean for you. Matt wrote about this, uh, I guess this posted uh, a little bit earlier this week. Um, so, Matt, what is the shakeup at the PCAOB? Yeah, hi, Tom. So um, this was a bit of stealth news that the PC, uh, I'm sorry, that the Securities and Exchange Commission quietly announced on Friday evening, just before the long weekend, uh, where they announced that Kathleen Hamm, who is a member of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB, which oversees the accounting industry and audit firms, uh, Kathleen Hamm would not be reappointed to a second term on the board of the PCAOB and instead will be succeeded by a Rebecca Gorshorn Gerada, uh, who is a White House policy aide, and she will take her place on a five-year term starting October 24, so that runs until October 2024, if I'm doing my math right. Um, and I know that that might seem like a somewhat innocuous shakeup, replacing exactly one member of the five-member PCAOB. Uh, and what would that mean? But actually, I do think that this is a rather telling sign of the SEC, and particularly Chairman Jay Clayton, trying to um, wrestle more control over the PCAOB and what it, it is doing for oversight of the audit industry and trying to put the PCAOB into some sort of uh, oversight headlock that Clayton can then double down and try and run forward with his agenda for various things in audit compliance, risk assurance, and whatnot. But th that is what actually happened, is that Kathleen Hamm was replaced. We can talk about how unusual that is, but that's the news. But that's not the only news, because we had an uh, appointment of someone to lead the SEC's uh, coordination effort with the PCAOB. What about that? Ah, well, yes, thank you. I, that had slipped my mind that there was this companion piece of stealth news. That's how stealthy it was, I guess, that um, <laughs> SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce has been named the coordinator of the SEC's uh, efforts to work with the PCAOB. Um, now, we've not really had a coordinator like that before, where a commissioner is sort of running point to oversee the PCAOB, and it's not necessarily clear exactly what that coordination would be. I don't think it would be correct to say that she's going to be the boss of the PCAOB, but she certainly is going to be able to keep a very close eye on the PCAOB and what it has been doing. And that is of interest because uh, Hester Pierce is very much, I would say, in the libertarian mold of financial regulation. And uh, she wants to repeal or rescind all sorts of efforts that we have seen come forward since the Dodd-Frank Act, since Sarbanes-Oxley, um, she would like to relax the compliance burdens around Sarbanes-Oxley Act. She was definitely part of the, the group that would like to, um, that has pushed forward, I should say, pushed forward relaxing some rules around the Dodd-Frank Act um, and undoing a lot of what had been done in the last 10 years or so. 
So Pierce has been outspoken about that. And now she is going to be the point person overseeing the PCAOB as well. And we have this new loyalist who has taken over for Kathleen Hamm. Um, It is worth noting, just to show you how unusual this personnel shift is, um, never before has a PCAOB board member who wanted to serve a second term been denied reappointment. And Hamm absolutely did want to be reappointed, but the Securities and Exchange Commission started advertising and soliciting nominations for that seat over the summer. So Kathleen Hamm put out a statement that said she would still very much like to serve a second term and she would like to keep that seat. And uh, then the SEC, and this is all the chairman, Jay Clayton, he broke precedent and broke custom and decided not to appoint Hamm to a second term and put in this uh, White House aide, uh, Rebecca Gerada, who is fairly unknown, had some experience in the Treasury Department, had some experience on the House Financial Services Committee when Republicans were in charge. Very much looks like from her LinkedIn profile, a picture perfect Republican Trump loyalist type. Uh, You would therefore expect that she might get uh, some sort of nomination like this. And here we are. But it is highly unusual to see this sort of a thing happen. So, man, I can remember under uh, Bush, the younger administration, uh, with the Christopher Cox tenure at the SEC, where uh, he basically eviscerated SEC enforcement um, because of his personal ideology. Do you see those sorts of ideologues being uh, appointed or is this a, really something different? I wouldn't necessarily say appointed so much as um, influence exerted. That's what's going to happen here. Uh, but. For example, take Section 404B of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which requires an annual audit of your internal control over financial reporting. Uh, One of the big conservative goals is to repeal compliance with 404B for as many companies as possible. And I think if Hester Pierce had her way, she would just say 404B would be optional for everyone. Um, That's not going to happen. Large companies will always be subject to 404B audits. Very small companies, uh, non-accelerated filers, they are not subject to 404B right now. I don't know that they ever will be. But one of the goals has been to expand that exemption pool to many more companies. Um, The theory is that if you expand this exemption, more small companies will go public earlier, will have more IPOs, uh, there will be unicorns and candy and rainbows and everything will be great. In reality, if you expand 404B exemptions, so more companies are not getting those audits, those are the companies that experience more financial restatements. Um, They cause more trouble for the investors in them. Uh, This does not lead to more IPOs. IPOs were in decline long before 404B came along. IPOs are in decline around the world where 404B does not exist in other countries. IPOs are not happening because it's really very enticing for small companies to stay private and just wait for some private equity person to give you a bottle of cash and then you sell your company. So none of the theoretical arguments for 404B exemptions, they they don't actually hold water. Nobody on the Republican side seems to really care about that. They're fixed on the idea that more exemptions, repeal 404B for as many people as possible, do it, do it, do it. They can't do it unless an actual act of Congress comes. 
the SEC can nibble around this around the edges, or you could exert influence over the regulator of the audit firms that actually do these audits. And wouldn't that be much easier if you have a 404B repeal libertarian type, such as Commissioner Pierce, coordinating oversight with the PCAOB and start packing the board with more loyalists, um, such as Rebecca Gerada, so that basically Jay Clayton can push this goal of his over the finish line. Um, I think because he knows that you know the clock's ticking on his tenure. It is not at all clear that President Trump is going to be reelected in one year's time. It, I don't even know that Commissioner Clayton would actually want to be reappointed to chairman, or maybe Donald Trump would not want him in for his second term at all. But if this is one of his goals, he's got to get it done, got to get it done somehow. What we're seeing with the PCAOB machinations here is a neat way to get it done um, as expeditiously as possible. You know, you slow roll oversight of the audits, and basically you tell the PCAOB to go easy on the audit firms with a light touch, and then you know you try and achieve the same goal in an easier path. And that's this. So this is a symptom, or this is a sign of a larger thing that Jay Clayton is trying to do as chairman. He'll push all of his agenda as quick as he can. Matt, we recently had uh, yet the most other or the most newest recent example of really the rigor of the public markets in the uh, putative now withdrawn IPO around WeWork. Um, And I think one of the lessons I drew from that uh, fiasco was that the market demands uh, certain structures, certain processes, certainly good corporate government governance and uh, financial acuity uh, as well. But uh, it struck me that that was really a, a prime example of the market speaking and the market working as it should to protect a wide variety of investors. And now we have this really immediately after yeah. the, the WeWork debacle. You know, WeWork is fascinating because, yeah. to be clear, if that company had gone public, which it never should have, and I'm glad it's not going to, but if WeWork had gone public today, it would never have been a small filer anyways. It was always going to be big. It was always going to have to be subject to 404B right off the bat because it had more than a billion dollars in annual revenue. I mean, it also had like a zillion dollars in losses, but hey, whatever. Um, what really sunk WeWork was poor, poor, poor corporate government structures, um, giving its founder, Adam Newman, way too much control way too little oversight, and all sorts of wacky accounting measures that nobody, no self-respecting audit firm would have really said, this is clean. They all would have said, this stinks. This is sketchy, whatever. This was going to be a mess. Um, What I am not really clear on is if we had some sort of mystical way to make WeWork go public much earlier in its life, like what would have happened? So if it had gone public much earlier and not been subject to 404B audits, uh, it would have maybe gone public and been a smaller total train wreck, I guess a a small little locomotive wreck, but it still would have been a wreck and there would not have been any audits of its internal controls to say that this stinks and any investor should avoid it like the plague, which really was the case. Um, If it had gone public now, would its audit firm have been able to give it a clean bill of health? I I don't know. I don't think it should have. And of course, didn't happen because its accounting metrics and accounting policies were really that wacky. Um, But like if Jay Clayton had gotten his way, if Jay Clayton's vision of 
you know, battalions of mom and pop companies going public earlier, like what would that bring us if uh, they were still having loosey goosey internal controls? Um, I look at this, this vision that Commissioner Pierce and uh, Chairman Clayton have, and I can't help but recall the dot-com bubble of the 1990s. When I was there, I was a tech reporter back in the 90s, when any cockamamie business plan and venture uh, capital-backed idea would go public, it would suddenly be worth a zillion dollars, and then the accounting wasn't there, the business model was crap, and it made no money, and then it tanked, or they had some sort of a restatement. Um, and then you saw the dot-com implosion. When you hear the statistic, and listeners, you will hear this from people who argue in favor of repealing 404B, you will hear that the number of public companies in the U.S. has declined by more than half since 1996. Why do they pick 1996? Because that is just before the dot-com bubble began, and if you look at the number of IPOs, it really it skyrocketed in the late 90s, and then it fell off a cliff between 90, like 2001 and 2003. So when SOX and 404B came along in 2003 and 4, the decline in IPOs since then is not more than 50%. It's like less than half of that number. It's, I think it's about 20 or 25%. Um, all of which really can be ascribed to mergers and acquisitions and private equity buyouts uh, because interest rates have been low for the last 10, 11 years. And so money has been cheap. So companies went on a big spending spree and scooped up smaller companies. The idea that you can reinflate uh, the number of IPOs sounds nice, but the reality of it would be that we'd reinflate the dot-com bubble. Um, you don't want to be there at the end of that bubble, because when the bubbles burst, everybody gets splattered all over the place. And that's what we went through in 2001. We should not go through it again. But that's kind of what Jay Clayton seems to ignore when he talks about all of this. So the um, does this really uh, impact directly or even perhaps indirectly our compliance practitioners fan base of compliance into the weeds? Well, you know, it, indirectly, yes, because, Tom, how often have you and I talked about FCPA enforcement actions from the SEC that involve uh, internal controls and accounting policies and whatnot? Um, if you are not bringing appropriate rigor to your internal controls, then there are going to be things that are missed or things that slip through more easily. Um, so, therefore, if we do apply audits to accounting policies, to um, accounting controls and internal controls, uh, you are more likely to catch some of these loosey-goosey practices. You straighten them out. You are probably in a better position to prevent the sort of FCPA enforcement that we see. Um, we see all sorts of other uh, accounting enforcement actions that aren't necessarily about corruption or anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA. You know, we've also talked about... Um, any sort of management earnings scenarios, all of these things depend on poor accounting controls, uh, poor oversight, and audits are one way to catch that and try and fix it. Um, for most of the large companies that are out there, and I know that's a lot of our listeners, this doesn't really cost you that much anyway in relative terms. Now, if you're a tiny company, sure, SOX audits are can be relatively expensive, but if you're 500 million or a billion dollars in annual revenue, like SOX audits really are not that 
intrusive relative to all the other audit costs that you have. Um, and, you know, I should say actually as well, I know I've been talking a lot about 404B, but another thing that to keep in mind is that the PCAOB keeps an eye on audit firms that are auditing a whole bunch of other stuff too. And we've had a lot of other accounting standards come forward, such as lease accounting. Tom, I know you and I have talked about that. Critical audit matters that get disclosed by an audit firm. We've talked about that. Uh, Credit losses, that's going to be a new standard that comes into effect next year that a lot of financial firms do not like. Uh, Revenue recognition, and Tom, we did a whole little podcast extravaganza last year on that. So these are a lot of new standards that companies are struggling with. Audit firms are bringing their attention to bear. Their audit fees are going up. Companies don't like that. Well, it's very difficult for the SEC itself to, say, reverse the new standard on lease accounting or revenue recognition. That would be a big deal. It would take a long time. But a much easier way to alleviate the burden for companies and therefore to placate all of the constituencies that Jay Clayton has behind the scenes, um, an easier way to do all of that would be to tell the PCAOB to go light on inspecting audit firms and how they're handling all these new standards. And we're seeing that as well. This is just going to be another way to bring the audit regulator more closely under the thumb of the Securities and Exchange Commission so Chairman Clayton can push forward his agenda and please the constituencies that politically he needs to please if he wants to uh, stick around or be seen as successful. So there's a lot that's going on there. Um, And again, you know, I think this is suggestive of some other moves we've seen from the SEC, canceling public meetings on contentious issues and just pronouncing a new set of rules are going to be adopted. We've seen them do that from time to time um, because Clayton knows the clock is ticking on his tenure. And there's no clear sign that President Trump will be reelected, that Jay Clayton might stick around in 2021. He might not even want the job, might want to go back to the private sector and keep making a zillion dollars. But um We're going to see, I think, more of this that you've got to push forward no matter what. I think also that it will then lead to other groups that are not happy about this, basically the Democrats uh, on the commission and their constituencies, probably going to tie up a lot of new SEC policies in litigation. So um, you could see that with whistleblower award program reforms that the commission has talked about that the Democratic commissioners have point blank said, if we reform this, that might not be according to law. That's like a clarion call. Somebody please haul this into federal court. Um, You're going to see that dynamic over and over again with whistleblower awards, SOX 404B audits, Lord knows what else. The commission has got to hurry up and get this through. And then unhappy people on the minority side are going to threaten to tie it up in court. Um, So what we saw on Friday with uh, Kathleen Hamm being succeeded by Rebecca uh, Gerada. That's just like one small indicator of a much larger thing that's happening with SEC policy that come hell or high water, they're going to shove a few things through. And this, this is what happened here. Matt, it almost sounds like at the same time, it's going to be both a wild ride and highly problematic. Uh, yeah. You know, like I want to stress again, it's not improper. It's not illegal. Uh, the, Jay Clayton has full authority to do exactly what he did with replacing Kathleen Ham and appointing Commissioner Pierce in charge. He absolutely can do that. Is it wise? That depends on who you ask. 
is it going to be a wild ride? Oh yeah, I think so. Um, and so are we going to have probably even more whip shawing of policies and a lot of back and forth that compliance officers and audit executives just have to kind of sit back and marvel and wonder what's, what's going to happen. Yeah. Like that, that's going to be it for the next 12 months, at least I think. Well, Matt, this sounds like a, uh, if not depressing, uh, uh, certainly a good end, uh, to this discussion and one that we will have to keep our eye on. All right. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic. Compliance into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, now a part of C-Suite Radio. And once again, we have our own iTunes show. So, Get the iTunes Compliance Into the Weeds app so you can check us out every week on a regular basis. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.